It is not. Um, I will just share my screen, but with, um, I need to put this on one window only. Okay. Now, hold on. Okay. Sorry, I need to like start sharing, I think, before because then I can see both things. And then I need to go here and do the slideshow thing. Okay, do you see, which screen do you see? We see the title now, Malu. Okay. I think it's the right one, yeah. Okay, perfect, great. Well, <laughs> thank you for, for coming to this today. Uh, these sessions are meant to be very informal and a way for us to present research that's ongoing or um, you know, that's just been published. But the idea is to introduce you to the process of how we're doing research so that one, you get a sense of our research agendas, but two, um, that hopefully these are also helpful um, for you to be thinking about doing your own research as well. And so um, my research follow, falls mostly under these two areas within the political science literature, uh, which is the areas on institutions and political behavior. And I tend to get to both of these literatures through a gender and politics lens. And so all of the projects that I'm gonna be talking about today are gender and politics uh, projects, except for one of them. And what I'm gonna be doing is not presenting the projects, um, you know, in, in, in how, how I would normally, which is, you know, motivate the, the question, present the question, tell you about the research design and then the findings and their implications. Um, given that the main purpose of today is to just give you a sense of how is it that we're doing research in a way that helps you think about your own research what I'm going to do is instead focus on how these questions uh, for each one of these projects have come up and then what were some of the challenges that um, I and my co-authors faced in answering these questions and what were the solutions that we came up with to answer these questions. Now, this set of slides is 101 slides long, and that is because if you do have any questions about research findings, I can go through them. Uh, but at first, I will just, you know, go through the questions and then challenges and solutions quite quickly. Also, because, you know, I couldn't really choose. Um, I wasn't very selective about the, the projects that I was gonna present because I'm just way too excited about way too many things right now. So anyways, um, I'm gonna try to be brief in each one of these things. The first thing that I wanted to um, talk to you about is my book manuscript, which is titled Vulnerable Men, Political Ambition and Resistance to Gender Quotas. And this is a study of um, gender quotas in all of Latin America, but with a focus on three particular countries, Brazil, Costa Rica, and Chile. The question for this, uh, for the manuscript is why do majority men legislatures adopt gender quotas? And this question emerged from a puzzle. 
in um, that the empirical reality of the diffusion of gender quotas didn't match with what uh, political science talks about as one of the main goals of politicians, which is that of retaining office. And so in other words, if politicians want to stay in office and the majority of politicians are men, why is it that they're adopting a type of policy that could uh, put them out of office? And so this mismatch between the rapid diffusion of gender quotas in uh, Latin America on the one hand, and this staple of the political science literature, which is you know, one of the core assumptions of political behavior, uh, is what led me to this, to this puzzle. Um, now, what were some of the challenges? Well, first of all, is that uh, when you think about you know, this assumption of rationally driven behavior, this is an assumption that is held at the individual level. In other words, individual politicians are thought to behave in this way, yet you observe the adoption of gender quotas at the aggregate level, at the level of you know, a country or a legislature. Um, and so there is this mismatch between level of you know, the theoretical level and then the level of analysis and observation. But secondly, um, the, the other and more important challenge here is that it is very unlikely that um, legislators would say, well, you know, we oppose gender quotas because of our own interest to stay in office, or, you know, we only supported them because of their normative, um, normative, um, you know, focus of promoting gender equality. You know, I can talk more about the argument that I make to bring these two things together if you're interested, but methodologically, my solution here was to take a mixed methods approach with shifting units of analysis so that I could look into the micro foundations of my theory, which rested on individual level, rationally driven behavior. Um, and for that, I used a survey experiment with Brazilian politicians and analyses of roll call uh, votes and um, also aggregate level processes. And so legislative transcripts, which is something that I observed um, in these three cases of Costa Rica, Brazil and Chile. And so I like reviewed every single uh, transcript of every single meeting within committees and plenary that uh, took place, you know, in, in the case of Costa Rica, for example, from the late 70s until 2019, in the case of Brazil from the late 80s until uh, 2019, and in the case of Chile also uh, from the, you know, mid 90s until, um, until 2019. Um, and then I also conducted interviews with stakeholders. It's interesting because one of the things that you know, people always told me was that it wouldn't be able to find in these legislative transcripts um, anyone saying explicitly that their opposition to gender quotas was rationally driven and because they wanted to protect their own, um, their own seats. And part of the argument that I present here is that indeed these politicians are driven by rational be 
well, rational um, interests and the interest to protect their seeds, but that they can't explicitly, you know, say that at the moment of roll call votes uh, because of these normative pressures. And so they act rationally before this, these pieces of legislation get to the moment of voting. And they do that by weakening gender quota provisions in commissions, um, in committees and, uh, you know, in like behind closed doors so that when the policy finally does come up to a vote, it isn't very threatening to anyone. Um, and one of the things that I found really interesting is that in the transcripts, you actually do uh, find various instances of people very explicitly saying, this is too much, like you're demanding too much here. Um, and we don't want this because it, it would potentially um, be a problem for us to get elected in the next election. But all right, so next project. Um, so the next project, this is a, a very, it's a project that it's in, in, in very early stages, but I wanted to talk about it because it's interesting. It, it's, a pro it's the first time that I do a project in this way. Um, this is a project in collaboration with Guilherme Husso and Deborah and that is part of a larger project that I'm conducting um, with them for Instituto Pideichi, which is a civil society organization in Brazil, working towards the promotion of representation of marginalized groups in office. And the question here is what drives diverging levels of voter support for gender and racial candidate quotas? And um, this question actually came about from the results of one of the surveys that we did with Brazilian voters as part of this larger project. And when we did this survey, one of the findings was that um, voter support for quotas for women uh, were much higher than support for quotas for Afro-Brazilians. And so 73% of respondents said that they would support some type of candidate quota for women, uh, but only 57% of respondents said that they would support a candidate quota for Afro-Brazilians. And what's interesting about this is that Afro-Brazilians are 56% of the population in Brazil and women are 51% of the population in Brazil. And so, you know, they're both majority uh, groups and yet there is this um, divergence in levels of support. Um, and so what we wanted to figure out is like, where is this really coming from? Um, some of the challenges in answering this question is that there was a lack of existing theory to explain this finding, particularly because there hadn't been, or there aren't really many studies contrasting these two different types of candidate quotas, also because most candidate quotas that focus on racial or ethnic groups are different from you know, gender quotas in that they tend to be reserved seats. Um, and also, and, and for groups that are you know, a racial minority or an ethnic minority. And in this case here, Afro-Brazilians are uh, a racial majority. Uh, hence why in, in these previous um, cases, they're reserved seats. Um, but also because as is the case with any study on gender and racial attitudes, social desirability bias really prevents a clear grasp of true attitudes of people and their behaviors. And so essentially no one wants to display um, 
sexist or racist attitudes and surveys. And this, you know, this varies to different extents. So for example, if you have interviews, like lots of these public opinion surveys, particularly um, election polls, they tend to be in person so that it is fully representative. And so you have a person in front of you who's asking you all these questions and that tends to make people particularly aware of you know, the types of answers that they're giving. Uh, many other surveys are conducted over the telephone. So, I mean, you, you, you're not as um, compelled by social disability bias, but you're still interacting with someone who could be judging you. There are also um, online surveys in which you're not interacting with anyone, but, um, but social desirability bias still applies. No one wants to explicitly think of themselves as racist or sexist. I mean, some people do, but that's beyond the point. We can talk about that too. But generally, on average, no one wants to, uh, people are hesitant to display these racist and uh, sexist attitudes. And so how do we, how do we um, you know, go about in solving these challenges? Well, first, to tackle the first challenge, we needed to do some theorizing here. And part of the theorizing that we did was that was through focus groups. And so we wanted to investigate the possible mechanisms here that were explaining this. And so we conducted 10 focus groups, um, each one of them with eight uh, voters. And so we had a total of uh, 80 voters across four different Brazilian cities. And we just asked basically, you know, similar questions that we asked in the survey, but we saw people speak and provide explanations for what is it that they were saying. And this allowed us to theorize potential explanations. Um, and we extracted two potential explanations from that. And then we designed a survey experiment to try to get around social desirability bias and uh, really get to these two different uh, explanations and the extent to which they indeed are part of the underlying mechanism explaining these differences here. All right, so third project, this is a project that is forthcoming at um, Comparative Political Studies, which is, um, which, which is a political science journal. And the question here is, does electoral conservatism reduce the likelihood of adoption of policies to protect women from violence? Um, this is a question that again came in, in a slightly or emerged from a very different way from how you normally conduct research. Essentially, one of my co-authors, who's someone who I work with a lot, Vitor Araujo, um, he was doing another project and he came across uh, data on policy instruments to protect women from violence at the municipal level in Brazil. And he thought, look, you know, we could do something with this. Can you think about anything to do with this? Because um, I'm the gender person. <laughs> um, and I said, well, yes, actually. I mean, I have this hunch about conservatism and the adoption of policies to protect women from violence at the municipal level, because, you know, Brazil has the Maria da Penha law at the national level, but it is up to municipalities to adopt or not adopt the instruments to actually carry out or implement the law at the local level. And I had this hunch that more conservative municipalities were not adopting um, a more encompassing framework to protect women from violence as uh, less conservative municipalities, something that is not necessarily um, you know, obvious to the literature given that violence against women 
is talked about in the literature and empirically, sh empirically shown to not be prone to uh, conservative, you know, to, to be uh, driven by ideology, given that this is uh, a non-dogmatic issue and everyone kind of, you know, would want to protect women from violence, at least in practice. Uh, but because, you know, essentially when you take it to the, to the municipal level, uh, it's about prioritization of, of issues and issue salience, given that you don't have budget to do everything. And so, you know, the idea here was if the electorate is not demanding this as much as other things, maybe local governments are not responding to the same extent and are, and are prioritizing other areas that the electorate is actually also prioritizing. Um, what are some of the challenges of testing this? Well, one uh, is an issue with measurement and so measuring electoral conservatism at the uh, municipal level. I mean, it tended to be difficult, uh, but thankfully, you know, there was a new data set that allowed us to do this. But um, anyways, but, but there, there was this measurement issue, but most importantly, there's an issue of causality here. Uh, we can't establish causality. So this wasn't really a causal inference paper. We are able to show correlations between, you know, uh, levels of conservatism at the municipal level and um, the adoption of these policies. But again, the micro level foundations of this um, are not uh, given by this correlation at the aggregate level. And so, um, what we tried to do to circumvent some of these challenges was one, to combine a series of data sets. This took quite a lot of work to put, you know, over 12 government data sets together to carry this out. But then we um, luckily had access to another uh, data set that was at the individual level and that kind of matched what we were doing in terms of priorities towards uh, policies on violence against women. But again, I mean, we, we cannot establish causation at all um, as we would want to in the ways that political science is going now. I mean, I think that there are, this raises some questions about where political science is going as a discipline and the, the types of works that are valued and not valued in the discipline as a result of that and the types of questions that you're able to ask or not. And I'm very grateful that we were able to ask this question and answer this in a non-causal way because there is no way to answer this causally. I mean, if you think about it, we would have to try to find an exogenous source of conservatism in order to, um, in order to uh, establish this causal mechanism, which is just not existing. I mean, you know, it would not be possible to do that. Um, and so essentially, you know, this raises a question about, well, should we just be answering questions that we can, uh, that we can provide answers for uh, causally? And I don't think so. And I think that this is, that this is an example, but we were concerned, for example, about um, whether this was a paper that we would be able to publish highly in a top ranked journal, precisely because we weren't able to provide a causal identification strategy to answer the question. Thankfully we were, but we were not very confident about that. And anyways, but that's a whole other story that I'm also happy to talk about more if you're interested in, because I think that, you know, this whole discussion about um, 
publication motivations uh, that are determined by journal articles and things that are outside of your interests um, and how that ends up also shaping your research agenda are, are really interesting and, and pertinent. And I think that we should be having these conversations. All right, next project. Um, this is a project that's also forthcoming. It's with Kristen Wiley and it asks the question of how do parties use informal institution? How do parties use of informal institutions impact women's candidacies and election? I wanted to talk about this project because, well, you know, the way that it came about wasn't super interesting. It was knowledge of the literature and contextual dynamics and conversations between me and Kristen, who's also a gender scholar studying Brazil. But I think that what is interesting about this is that informal institutions are by definition very difficult to measure. These are things that are not formal, hence not written and anywhere. Um, and because they're informal, they're very difficult to grasp. Uh, informality also means that people don't want uh, to have a track of this. And so if you think about informal institutions, including things like corruption, uh, right, you don't really, it's really hard to measure because that's, you know, that's the, the very point of it. Um, and so, you know, the main challenge here was observing and measuring these informal institutions. And then secondly was when we finally did find data that we could use that the quality of the data was not great and it was very difficult data to clean, to interpret and to deal with. Um, the solution was to limit the scope to only two most visible forms of informal institutions. Um, and so we, we just focus on two things and then you know, to, to solve this issue of the difficult and um, not great quality data, we had to run a series of robustness checks with various different uh, model specifications, but with different subsets of the data. Um, so as to see whether our findings held, uh, depending on how we cut the data and how we measured um, our, our um, informal institutions. So this is a paper and I'm almost done. I have three other projects that I wanted to present to you. This is a paper that I was very excited about. It is now forthcoming, uh, which is also really exciting because this paper was a nightmare to work on. And it was a nightmare for a number of reasons, but it's the only non-gender paper that I'm talking about today. And one of the only few non-gender studies that I have. The question here is, does information about candidates' electoral performances impact voters' decisions, and if so, how? So another way of putting this is, uh, does gaining knowledge that someone is winning lead candidates to change their vote in their favor? And the idea for this paper actually came from a WhatsApp audio message in one of my family, in my family, well, one of my family WhatsApp groups. I think it's the only good thing to have ever come out of my family WhatsApp group. Um, but it was uh, an audio that came on the day of the first round of the Brazilian elections 2018. 
and uh, in which one of my cousins reported being in queue to vote after the electoral results, the official electoral results started coming out. And I was like, oh my God, this is a natural experiment to test something that is really cool. Um, because the literature has for ages talked about the bandwagon effect. I mean, this literature is a literature that's huge in the United States, but there are multiple issues of testing this in real elections, uh, which have to do with causality. Because, for example, in the United States, what happens is that, you know, since the 50s, there are these huge debates about whether, um, you know, polls that close in the, in the East Coast impact electoral results in the West Coast because polls are still open. And so, and, and particularly in the 1980, like in Reagan's, uh, you know, Reagan versus Carter, there's this whole thing about how, you know, essentially um, electoral results in the East Coast then led to Democrats not voting in the West Coast, something that also led to, um, to, uh, changes of results, not only in the presidential election, but also in um, in legislative elections. But the issue is that here, for example, in this in this case of the United States, you have completely different types of constituencies. They're voting uh, very differently, and so you're you can't really make this causal claim because there could have been other things other than information exposure that are affecting voter behavior. For example, it might be that it's just like raining uh, a lot in California and people didn't go out to vote because of that. Or it could be because, you know, a bunch of different reasons that have nothing whatsoever to do with information. And so you can't really isolate the, the, the impact of information. And so most of the literature had been, had been done in labs. But again, like labs and survey experiments, they also have limitations when it comes to uh, external validity because people, the stakes are much lower. It's not a real election and people don't necessarily behave in the same way that they would in a real election. And so when I got this message, I was like, this is the perfect setting to test this. And this is super cool. Well, some of the challenges, one, the data size, the data were absolutely insane to deal with. Um, I am very thankful to Victor, who's also my co-author on this piece, because he was cleaning the data uh, for this, and he had to, like, dedicate his entire computer memory to just cleaning these data, which were millions and millions and millions of lines, because the unit of analysis here is voting machine in Brazil, but the way that the data are structured are that you have one line for each electoral outcome for like each candidate per each voting machine. So it was like millions and millions and millions of lines, a nightmare to clean. We also got into methodological traps because we made this project a lot more complicated than it needed to be in the beginning. It's a simple experiment. We were treating this as an instrumental variable. We were doing like all sorts of crazy things with this paper in the beginning. Uh, it, it, was, it was hard for, for it to click with us. And so it wasn't anything about the setup or, you know, the data. It was us. I mean, it, 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 it was hard for us to, to click what we needed to do. Um, and the third thing that was really hard about this is that it was writing the paper itself because the empirical setup and the, you know, the, um, our causal inference strategy rests on people really understanding 
very specific aspects of the logistics of Brazilian elections, having to do with timestamps on voting machines, having to do with different time zones, having to do with when and how things are um, are released, having to do with you know how people are registered to vote in voting machines, to the mandatory voting in Brazil. I mean, it was a nightmare to write this as a paper. And so we had to learn along the way. This paper got rejected at some of the top journals. Um, I mean, it ended up getting published in one of the best journals in political science, but only because, I don't know how, like in the sense that we really burned our ourselves pretty early and pretty quickly. And we shouldn't have done that because we kept on sending the same version of the paper to multiple journals without really understanding the problems that were going on with it. And this is something that, you know, I've learned my lesson. Um, and it wasn't until we presented it a few times to multiple people that we realized that we just really, you know, simple was better. We needed to simplify the theory. We needed to simplify the empirical approach. And then it finally, you know, got us through and the review process was great and it is now out and I'm super happy. But this was a challenging paper to write. Okay, just two more projects, which I will try to get through quickly so that we can talk. Um, this is a project that has been going on forever and I can't wait to finish. But the question is a simple one and it's one that I think is really interesting, which is whether Dilma Rousseff's impeachment impact voters' evaluations of women's fitness for political office in Brazil, uh, with Dilma not only being the first woman president, but also the most visible woman in Brazilian politics, given that Brazil has very low rates of women's representation throughout the country, with 12% of, uh, of mayoral seats being occupied by women, only one woman governor, and 15% of seats in the uh, national legislature being occupied by women. And so Dilma was by far the most visible woman figure in the country, and she was impeached. And so how is it that that you know, leads people to think about women's capacity to be in office more broadly? Um, so this came from, you know, knowledge of the literature and contextual dynamics and conversations with my co-author, which is Anna Pathrick, who's at Oxford. And we started this project when we were both PhD students and still ongoing. Again, cannot wait to finish this. We just conducted a second survey experiment for this um, right before last year's elections. But so some of the challenges, well, the impeachment had already happened, meaning that the entire population had been treated. In other words, we didn't have two groups of people, one who had experienced the impeachment and one who hadn't. And so how is it that then we're able to isolate how the impeachment uh, changed people, people's perceptions of women's, women in office? We also didn't have a baseline. We don't know how people feel about women in office. So we can't do, a before and after comparison and then say, well, this event led to this change. Uh, and finally, the issue with all of my projects on public opinion or behavior um, towards women um, or other marginalized groups, which is social desirability bias. People just don't want to say that they're sexist. So the solution here was to have a survey experiment. Well, first to give it some time between the impeachment and the time of the survey so that not everyone was talking about the impeachment all the time. And so we conducted the first experiment for this right before the 2018 elections. 
Um, and then we did a survey experiment in, in which we reminded people about the impeachment and got their own evaluations of the impeachment in of Dilmouth. Um, and then, so like half of the people did that and half of the people did a completely different activity. I mean, exactly the same activity, but having nothing to do with politics. So the questions were still structured in the same way, but there, were, there was, were not, not political questions. And then to deal with the issue of social desirability bias, we ran an implicit association test, which is a test that tries to measure in milliseconds by measuring people's rapid responses to their associations between categories, in this case, positive and negative political attributes and um, you know, feminine and masculine um, um, political offices. And so we used here things like senadora, senador, governadora, governador. Um, we use this implicit association test to measure uh, people's asso positive or negative associate gendered associations. And then we also ask some, uh, some, some explicit um, questions. For those of you who were in my gender and politics module, um, you'll have taken the implicit association test because that was one of the, the activities that we did in the voting behavior week. Um, not my implicit association test, but you know, a implicit association test. Okay, this is the last project that I'm gonna talk about. It's a project that I'm super excited, like really excited. Um, it's a project called They Strike Again, The Impacts of a Football Club's Progressive Initiatives. And it's a project that I'm doing in collaboration with a football club in Brazil called Esporte Clube Bahia. Um, the question here is whether uh, initiatives led by a sports team shape its fans' social political attitudes on racism and sexism. Um, first, this idea came from the observation that Esporte Clube Bahia, which just happens to be one of the major teams in my hometown, was doing some really cool progressive initiatives on all sorts of areas, um, not only gender equality and anti-racism, but also anti-homophobia, um, indigenous land protection, um, all sorts of things. I mean, protection of, of uh, the, you know, the Brazilian public health system, um, direct and transparent elections. I mean, all sorts of things. And so I was like, this is really cool. They were deemed by the Guardian, the most progressive football club in Brazil. Uh, so there's like this really interesting article in the Guardian, if you want to look it up. Um, I was also really interested already in the topic of football and politics since college when I wrote this essay about this for a, uh, a course on nationalism. And I talked about this with Victor, my co-author. So he got really enthusiastic about it because he's a football fan. And I was like, you know, what about we do something about football and politics? And he's like, I'm totally in. Um, and I had a contact in the organization which also facilitated this collaboration. So what were some of the challenges of doing this? Well, first collaboration with non-academic actors um, for which the timing is different. So one of the things that we've struggled is that uh, for example, I had to get, you know, for all, all of these projects, we have to get ethics approval. It took three months to get ethics approval for this project and they were gonna have elections which possibly could have led to the team with whom we had made the arrangement to do this study be voted out of office. And so we were terrified of completely losing out on this opportunity. Um, they also didn't want to run the study when the team lost matches because they didn't want to request favors from their 
uh, fans, but the team was doing really badly. <laughs> and so we kept on having like week after week, we were not able to field this. Um, there were also lots of limitations on the types of questions that we could ask in the questionnaire because it would be very weird for a football club to just like start asking all sorts of like questions about political ideology and whatnot. And so we had to use different and creative proxies and there were limitations as to what we could ask and what we couldn't ask. We also didn't have control over recruitment because they were doing it and they messed it up very badly. Um, and we had to like come up with solutions to that. And we also didn't have any information about conversion rates because we had no idea of how people were gonna react to this and whether they were actually gonna complete this or not. And so it was very difficult to, you know, get a sense of how much was it that we could do uh, because to do an experiment, we need power, meaning we need a large number of people to reply, to. To, to respond so that we have statistical power to say that our findings are actually statistically significantly significant. And so we, we just didn't know how many people we were gonna get. So what we're, and again, social desirability bias, of course. Um, so how did we solve? Well, we did a, a survey experiment to try to get around social desirability bias. We had to reduce the number of planned studies. We, we designed six different experiments. We ended up only conducting two which was the right call because we got about um, 5,000 respondents and we had, you know, in total six different legs. And so we wouldn't have been able to do much more than that. Um, we expanded our recruitment options to Twitter, which was something that we didn't want to do in the beginning. We wanted to just keep recruitment through their mailing list, but there, there were some issues with that as well, partly because they messed up recruitment and we ended up losing over 2000 responses as, as a consequence. And so we got a bit freaked out about that. And then we had to accept and deal with the costs uh, in different ways. And part of this was, you know, losing responses. Part of this was anyways, reducing the number of planned studies, etc. But anyways, this is what I had to, this is what I prepared to tell you today. Of course, I didn't go into any of the findings, but I thought that for this sort of setting, it was more important perhaps to go over the, um, you know, the background of doing research rather than, you know, findings and other sorts of, and, and the literature, et cetera, et cetera. So with that, um, just open for your questions and thoughts. Yeah, Tom. Hi, I have to say the kitchen job. Thanks for thanks for that. It was really interesting. And yeah, to speak a bit about the way you solve the problems that have come up in this research. Um I have like I have a few questions just to like Great. To get the conversation going, but I'm happy I maybe I'll give you like one or two and then you always come back. Um yeah, like I mean you, you said you, you you didn't give me results, but I was particularly interested in any kind of early results of the presidential effect. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, I was also interested in how you get hold of the like the raw electoral data in Brazil, how you get into access data, like where you find that that's a you know, public file that you need some kind of special access. Um, I was also stop me if, if when it's too much, but I was also interested in what data you use to measure conservatism. 
um, because I, I feel like in, in Brazil, like, you know, candidate choice and political parties is often completely disconnected to like actual, you know, conservatism in terms of kind of ideology. Um, you know, just because someone voted for Bolsonaro doesn't mean that they are conservative necessarily. Um, and what, if, oh yeah, in terms of the, the, the bandwagon effect and the and publishing results, I was interested if you thought that, you know, these, these proposed reforms which, uh, which Bolsonaro is keen on for the voto impresso and, you know, which it strikes me as unlikely that that would happen, but if that would radically change that, that kind of effect, what, what kind of impact that could have on, on, on that. Um, and then in terms of the football clubs, one thing I was interested in that is if you came across any, any backlash effect, and this is something that like, I particularly feel in terms of, of homophobia, um, like, you know, at the moment, it's, it's kind of Pride Month and you have all of the football clubs, they publish something with like a rainbow flag and they say, we support diversity. And then you look at like the Facebook comments and it's all people saying, stop shoving this down our throat. Um, I used to think you were great. I'm stopping following, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when you like look at the comments, it's always all negative. So I'm interested in like, you know, if there's a way of seeing if there's this kind of reverse correlation or if that's just a Facebook bubble. Um, okay, so you're hitting, my question. Like, Thanks again. <laughs> well, you're hitting lots of things. Great. Okay. So I will, I'll just take some of the, the ones that I don't need to show you anything on the screen first, and then I will show you some stuff. Um, I did say I have 101 slides. Um, okay. So electoral data, if you go to the TSI website, you have all of these data. These data are I have to say the electoral, um, the Brazilian electoral courts are incredibly good about data transparency. And so both in terms of the um, like candidate data, party data and, um, and results data. And so you can download the results data at the level of the voting machine which is the lowest level that you can find, which is the, the level that we use. And that data includes really amazing information because you have not only, you know, uh, the, the number of people who voted for each option, but also sort of so like for each candidate or, you know, or, or brancos or nulos, or, I mean, you can also, um, in the case of non, uh, you know, non-majoritarian elections, you can also cast a party vote, even though that's really rare. So you can download all of that at the, at the voting machine level. But the other thing that you know in Brazil is the characteristics of the electorate registered to vote in that voting machine. So you know the proportion of women who are registered to vote. So like, well, the number of women, right? Um, the level of education of uh, voters registered to vote there you know, their age and, you know, I think those are the three things that, you know, but it's like, it's, it's pretty amazing. The, the amount of information that you have about the electorate uh, registered to vote there. And you only know that because, you know, because of the way that the setup is done in which you have a fixed place to vote. Um, 
then you can also get candidate level data. Candidate level data are, I mean, you can get lots of more cleaned data, um, for example, at the candidate level uh, in the Sapespi website. So they, uh, which is part of FGV, they had a grant from FAPESB to, to construct this, this database to like clean lots of the data, but they don't have, like they don't do the data at the, at this like micro level, which is what we needed. Um, and so we had to get it directly from the TESIA website. But for many analyses um, that you might need that the SEPSB stuff, I mean, when I use like candidate data, I just download it from the SEPSB website and it all comes clean and beautiful, um, and I just use that. Uh, but I'm happy to talk more about that in case you're you're planning on using those data. Conservatism, we use uh, data from Rodrigo Rodriguez and Timothy Power. They have an article in the Brazilian Political Science Review um, that was published in 2019. And basically they produced this measure of conservatism at the municipal level. For that, they use so they've been doing the BLS, which is something that Tim and Seza Hazuku have been doing for you know the past two decades, basically asks legislators to rank parties on uh, a level of conservatism. And then they create the scores uh, for parties based on these surveys. Um, and then they use these scores and multiply these scores by the share of votes that each party gets at the municipal level to create an indicator of the level of conservatism of the electorate at the municipal level. I mean, it is not a perfect measure because there are you know, all sorts of issues, but it is definitely the best measure out there that exists. And it's very rare to have aggregate measures of, um, of conservatism at the municipal level, right? I mean, then we also use an individual measure of conservatism based on survey results which are attitudinal and not associated with parties um, as because as you point uh, there there are some issues to do that particularly at the individual level um, bandwagon in terms of the voting presso uh, printed votes I think it's a terrible idea printed votes are a nightmare um, because they can lead it's much more likely to lead to claims of, of corruption that are completely unfounded. Uh, it's much easier to um, to essentially, you know, be fraudulent with with printed votes than with the electro electronic machines. Um, in in Brazilian past, I mean, when votes were were I mean were you know done by hand, it, there's so many not only I mean anecdotal stories of people of that simply. Um, Adam, like made votes completely um, th thrown out votes because they would keep the, the ball, like the part of the pen under their nails and like, you know, Hazura, like essentially like write something there to say that they were invalid ballots. Um, it's much easier to, to essentially uh, create inconsistencies between these invalid ballots and the electronic machines. And then what it is that like, what is it that you come up with at the end? Like, what is it that was not trusted? Is it the printed votes? Is it the electronic machine? It just seems that it creates a possibility for, um, for claims of corruption 
when I think that under the current system, that is very unlikely to happen given all of the safety mechanisms that are in place and the hackathon that goes on every year before elections take place in which they open the code of the voting machines for hackers to try to uh, break it. And so, I mean, I am honestly much more confident in the current system that, that we have than in any proposals for printed votes. Okay, now with results. So, um, let me share my screen again. Um, so this is what we randomized and I'm gonna go quickly so that I can also get to um, Digby's questions. But basically you can see that one set of uh, people got um, got information about Dilma, the other ones got information about, you know, a shopping mall, but they were basically the same. And this is the IAT. What we find is that uh, Dilma Dilma's impeachment does impact evaluations of women's fitness for office, but only amongst women, women respondents. And so women respondents then who have a pro-woman bias at baseline become this, this pro-woman bias decreases among women voters. The issue is that men already have a pro-men bias, and so they already think that men are more um, capable than women at baseline, and the, the, the impeachment of Dilma doesn't impact them at all. And so we, we have a, uh, a negative impact amongst women because of their pro-woman bias, and this impact is actually driven by women who were disappointed by Dilma. And so those who thought that she was going to do well and, you know, uh, then in the end were disappointed by her. And you can see that basically is like this, uh, this curve here of the uh, women who were, who were disappointed. It's the, it's the continuous uh, line over there that is the one pushing uh, treated women to, uh, to essentially be more disappointed. Now, let me show you the results because you are you're completely right. There is huge backlash and this is exactly what we find, but we only find backlash in the anti-sexism initiative. So we had three, it's interesting because we have, we had three uh, treatments, you know, three, we randomized people into three conditions. We weren't interested in hearing about an initiative or not hearing about the initiative. We were interested in who sponsored the initiative because what we were interested in is in membership to a group and whether your association to that group then makes you more or less likely to become more pro or anti, you know. So essentially it's like, if your team is promoting an anti-sexism initiative, then do you become less sexist? So that was really what we wanted to get. And so our three, three groups were, you know, uh, an anti-sexism initiative promoted by uh, their team an anti-sexism initiative promoted by the team, Bahia, which with its main opponent, Vitoria, and then a uh, third anti-initiative, um, anti-sexism initiative promoted by a team that, I mean, actually a football organization, but that was not a team. Um, and so what we find is that actually those who were, who get to the treatment of their own team become more sexist 
than the others who receive the, uh, the mixed by uh, an opponent and the ones, um, uh, the one that is, you know, not from the team. What is most interesting, I think, about this, and I don't know if I have this, yeah, I do, is that this has a spillover effect in that the people who receive the Bahia, so the Bahia is the ECB, the Responsible Bahia treatment, they also become less likely to support the club's initiatives on other areas that have nothing to do with gender equality. And so at the end, we ask a series of questions of like, would you support in the club's initiatives on um, social inequality, um, on the environment, on homophobia, on, you know, a series of things. And they become less supportive of the team promoting initiatives on those areas in general as well. We don't find the same about um, with the anti-racism experiment at all. Like this gives us null results, um, which really leads us to think about, uh, you know, our idea here really is about backlash of who doesn't belong within the system, uh, which is women who are essentially very much underrepresented and uh, their presence is, is much less common in, um, in football stadiums and in football life in general. And so it is really about, you know, keeping the space for men. And this is, these findings are driven completely by the men who responded. And so we find no uh, effects for the women who responded, regardless of, of which treatment condition they were in. So let me stop sharing here and get to um, Digby's questions. And of course, I mean, it's almost 6 p.m. So if you have to leave, please do. But I will get to Digby's questions. But Tom, did I answer all your questions? Yeah, that's great. Fascinating. Thanks. Okay, and happy to talk more as well. So, okay, so what do you have on your other 90 slides? I have a shit ton of findings about all of the other projects that I presented to you. <laughs> that's what I have. I mean, I, I always have a deck of slides that summarizes all of my projects and that I can essentially like, you know, pick them and build new presentations. And so this is more or less what this is. Um, does the gender angle of your research help streamline your publication strategy? Or do you still generally submit to typical poli-sci journals? That's a good question. I mean, honestly, I think it's about incentives in the discipline. And I would I would encourage any early career scholars in political science to submit to mainstream political science journals because that's what's gonna give you jobs. And I think that I'm in a very different department because this is an interdisciplinary department, but I'm still, you know, I still need to kind of like play the game of political science, to be honest. And so, um, you know, while there are some projects that I pursue because I'm interested in, and I know that these are gonna go to very specific you know, subject journals. And I think that those are still important to do, um, but I think that I'm privileged to be able to pursue these projects right now because I'm in an interdisciplinary department that also values such publications. But the incentives of the career as a political scientist would be to submit to generalist top journals. And that means pursuing certain types of projects over others, right? And so, um, and I tend to start high. So um, the Ken conservatism, uh, you know, paper like conservatism and violence against women uh, 
project, we only, we started with CPS because we weren't sure whether it would even get into CPS. And CPS is like top three, four in political science. It did, um, but we were, we were actually quite surprised. Um, the, the, the bandwagon paper we submitted to AJPS, APSR, um, CPS, and it got rejected. And then we, we like went through so many revisions. I mean, this paper was again, a nightmare. And then we submitted to the British Journal of Political Science and that's where it's coming out now. Um, the one on Laranjas, that was the first time that my co-author had submitted to a non-gender and politics journal. And I, and I uh, really encouraged us to do that. And it's coming out at Party Politics and it was the first paper, it was the first attempt. Um, but lots of, I mean, but for example, I sent another paper that I didn't present today to Governance and which is a general journal that didn't fly. We're, we sent it now to a Latin American specialist journal. I have another project that I knew was not gonna go into a bigger, you know, more mainstream journal. We're also submitted it to a Latin American journal and some projects I submit to gender and politics journals because that's where they belong. That's where they're gonna be cited. But I think that especially as an early career scholar, you have to be aware of these dynamics and in a way be strategic about the projects that you pursue in the beginning. And I wasn't very strategic. I mean, honestly, I like I have papers coming out now, but I, for the longest time, focused on the book, which is a huge project. And it's, I mean, it's taken me forever to finish and I still haven't finished. And I like thinking back, I wouldn't have focused on that first. I would have finished on, I would have focused on bigger projects that I could place high early on and then focus on projects that are for more subject specific journals or, you know, projects like a book in which you take forever and you need the headspace to do it, etc. Um, where most papers value descriptive perspective predictive or increasingly causal studies? How much do you say your work is steered by this consensus and what are the issues, if any, that you see with this constraining your research agenda? I think that's a great question. I mean, I started answering that, I think, in my last answer. Um, I think it does constrain a bit. Uh, now, as I said, I, I you know, because I, I, I'm in the position that I am, I can pursue certain projects that perhaps I wouldn't be able to elsewhere or or if I wasn't in a permanent post. Um, but I think that it still does because in order to, you know, kind of establish yourself as an early career scholar, you do want to be publishing in these big top journals. And in a way that's the game that you play and it sucks because, you know, some projects you end up not pursuing or putting off for a bit longer because of that. So I have a project on Women United Against Bolsonaro and it's survey data that I collected within the Facebook group. And, you know, this Facebook group had four, uh, 4 million women during the election. They organized the street demonstrations against Bolsonaro. And they were the, the biggest um, women organized protests in the history of Brazil. I have these data. I have this project that I've been wanting to do for a while. It's, it's a convenient sample. It's not going to fly very high. It's a project that I really, I'm really excited about and I really like, but it's not on the top of my priority right priority list right now because I know that I'm not going to be able to 
uh, to publish it super well. And I need to, you know, prioritize the projects that I have right now that I think I can publish more highly and then go into these other things. But, but I do think it does restrict um, our research agendas, even when you are like I am in a, in a much more privileged position than most. And on that very optimistic and positive tone, I mean, we're right on time. If you do have any questions, I mean, Oscar, you're welcome to, you know, stop recording, I guess, and then leave if, uh, um, if you have to, I can stick around for a few more minutes. I think that I'm co-host. And so if Oscar leaves, I don't have to, it doesn't end the session, uh, but yeah, I'm happy to, to stick around. Uh, yeah <laughs> yeah no i have been i have been um working on lots and lots of things at the same time it's yeah not not i don't know if that's how i would recommend you to do things either but anyways thomas do you have another question yeah i just had a really quick question yeah. <laughs> i'm sorry um i was just interested like you know as you're saying data in brazil is generally incredibly good. Um, I was wondering if you're worried going forward about lack of funding to like data institutions here, the lack of census data, like is that going to impact research a lot over the next few years? They basically cancelled the latest census, right, from, from yeah, IBG. I'm terrified. I mean, there are some interesting discussions about um, the census. And in, in, I mean, one of the guys who I would recommend following on Twitter and uh, following discussions on the census is Rafael Pereira, who he's a geographer and he works on, he works with IPEA and he's phenomenal. I mean, he's really, really, really good. Um, and he's, he's made some important considerations about the census in the context of the pandemic that I do think are relevant, but, but, you know, but the point here is that yes, there has been um, and uh, a very active effort to undermine data collection across different areas. And even in terms of transparency, and so we do know that some data exist, but they're not as easily accessible as they were previously. Um, and so there are, there are some serious concerns about that, for sure. I mean, honestly, I don't know what to tell you about this. I think that all scientists in Brazil in all sorts of different areas are terrified um, because not only do we rely on this, but public policy relies on things like the census, but then also on other you know, data production, things like, for example, the, the, um, the health, uh, the universal health system produces uh, incredible like micro data on deaths and reason of deaths. And I mean, it, it's incredibly detailed and you can download this on a monthly basis and you have data on, you know, number of beds in hospitals. You have like all sorts of, you know, really detailed data. It's, it's incredible the data that the Brazilian government produces, these different institutions produce and make it available quite quickly in a very, you know, easy format. Um, and so, yeah, everyone is terrified because essentially these are data that are really important for tracking government performance, but also, you know, designing good public policy, responding to, uh, to political and social needs. And um, there's a real risk that, um, you know, without these data were, well, that these data are not gonna be uh, available. And you know, 
I always say this in my gender and politics course is that like you don't know that a problem exists until you can see that it exists, right? And and data are the ways in which we know that a problem exists. And so, uh, and for example, this becomes really evident when we're talking about trans rights in Brazil, right? Like we don't know what are some of the issues that need to be tackled for trans communities because these data are not collected. Like we just don't know um, what's going on across, you know, numbers of areas. And so like, for example, the state of Sao Paulo collects better data on trans people than any, well, not the, the state, but the city of Sao Paulo collects better data than any other place in Brazil. And so they, they have more targeted public policy for trans communities than in other parts of the country. But part of that is because they can actually see what the needs and problems are. Um, and so, and, and so that's one, the first problem is like, without data, we're not going to be able to identify problems. But the other issue is that once you weaken these institutions, right, it's, this then has repercussions, not only for Bolsonaro, but like for future governments who then will have to rebuild these institutions that have been interrupted. And, you know, people who like gain years and years and years and experience in, in doing this. And then you have to like rebuild all the stuff. And um, so this is really costly and can have impacts for decades. So anyways, um, I think, yeah, I think we should get going also so that everyone can, you know, maybe go out for a bit and enjoy the lovely sun. I have a question. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, of course, my name is. Sorry, hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Thank you. Um, that was very interesting. And I was I was paying attention to Thomas because he had really good questions as well. But um, yeah, so my question is, it's very, very specific. I, I've been working in research since 2014. And, and the first, well, I would say that the biggest problem that we've had, of course, is social desirability bias as well. And, and I want to know how how or what um, have been, you know, your strategies to overcome that? Because at some point we we thought um, we we are finishing one project and we had to uh, create a group with you know like um, psychologists and different people from just different disciplines because we we worked with interviews and focus groups and at some point we thought okay we. We are just we are getting answers that we want to hear, but of course we are not getting like the real thing. We know that at some point we knew that. So the context is uh, we we worked with um, gender stereotypes in um, high school students, right? And so it's really interesting. And, and yeah, at some point we, we had just really amazing answers, but they were they were you know not not really. Um, what they were thinking so we thought uh, but my idea was okay like I don't know anything about psychology this is not my domain I can't do anything with that so we thought we, we need more people people that they can deal with those things like you know professors and teachers and blah blah, blah. so my question is how how have been you know how are you dealing with this yeah yeah so I mostly deal with this uh with experiments and so um there is a very, uh, there is there is an extensive literature on, uh, you know, political psychology um, that comes from behavioral psychology and adopts some of the methods, but then also on survey design. 
um, that talk about some methods that you can, some experimental methods that you can use to uh, diminish the issues of um, social desirability bias. And so there are a few things that I've tried in the past um, with greater or, um, or you know, lesser levels of success. Um, but some <laughs> of the strategies include implicit association tests. There are some limitations to that because you have to do it on a computer because you need um, a keyboard. And there are questions as to you know, whether implicit biases actually do translate into explicit behaviors and attitudes. Because even though people have implicit um, or private thoughts about something, people do tend to correct in their real lives um, their behaviors or their attitudes because they do live in, in a social, um, you know, in a, in a social uh, sphere in which they know that some of these things are problematic. And so, you know, the correlation between implicit attitudes and explicit attitudes is not always uh, linear. Um, and so there are limitations there, but it is still an interesting tool to capture, um, to capture attitudes in a way that is less susceptible to social desirability bias. Another thing that people use quite a lot is list experiments. And so list experiments, they randomize one, the inclusion of one sensitive item. And so you can't know at the individual level who you know, has a certain attitude, but you can know at the aggregate level among your respondents, what percentage of respondents find that particular sensitive item problematic. Um, and then you can use, you know, more traditional, uh, like the randomization of vignettes or um, other types of experiments that like just randomize parts of information about something, which is like lots of the types of things that I do. So I randomize specific, um, specific primes. So I try to get people to think about something um, or to think about something else and then see how, you know, these particular primes impact on their attitudes, um, uh, you know, afterwards on the series of questions that I ask. And so you, you get to the mechanisms of what is leading to something um, a bit more, yeah, a bit more in, in, a, in a way that you can, can capture it a bit better. But, you know, social desirability bias is a really, is a really big deal. I mean, there, there are other things about like question um, ordering and question language that are also super um, interesting and important. And so when it comes to question order, for example, you know, each question, like the, the order, the, each question that comes before another one does end up priming your answer to the, to the next one as well. And so that's super, it's important to, to take that into account when designing these questionnaires. And then, um, and then just like the way that you ask questions as well. I mean, but, but there is, there's quite an extensive literature about that in, in the survey design literature. And, but again, it's, it's not like all of these things have limitations to be quite frank. Uh, triangulating yeah. data is always helpful and yeah, doing, you know, running the same thing multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, of course. Sorry, it can be, can't be more helpful. <laughs> no, no, that was really good. Thank you. <laughs> it's just, I, I agree. It's just, it's very difficult. And, and sometimes 
uh, we, we try a lot of things. Well, we already finished uh, with, with the project, but we try a lot of things. And then it's just, as you said, um, sometimes we want, obviously we want something to be successful, but it's just uh, with public opinion, it's, it's just diff it's difficult. That's the thing. Yeah, no, for sure. It's really difficult to capture um, sensitive items. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. well, thank you. All right. Uh, well, thank you all for joining. I hope that this was useful and helpful. And if you have, you know, any other questions, do get in touch with me by email. And otherwise, uh, go enjoy the sun if you're in London. Um, or, you know, go enjoy whatever it is, whatever, wherever you are. <laughs> yeah. All right, everyone. Uh, thank you, Marlon. Thank you. Bye. Bye.